Alrighty. Um, I'm going to have to look this way now instead of this way at the TV. But I, I can handle it. How's everybody doing? Um, I don't know if I've said that I record these, but I record these in case anyone is interested or you miss a week or something. Um, available. It's available on my podcast. Uh, <laughs> uh, this one is called Thoughtful Theology. Yes. It, yeah, I just have a... a uh, What's it called? Just any, anything that I'm that I teach, anything that I preach, um, I just throw up on there if I remember to record it, which is most of the time. Uh, but yeah, it's available there. Should be able to, yeah. If not, you would have to search through Anchor, which I I don't even Anchor Anchor FM. Um, the thoughtful theology if you google thoughtful theology it comes up on apple podcasts if you're into apple i'm not in case you're wondering and you'll find it it's there's a there's a picture of a bible and a cup of coffee it's not my picture it's just something that I think actually Anchorhead. Giddy up. There you go. All right. So, um, yeah, in case you want that or to catch up, I don't think I recorded the first one. I don't remember. So, we will open as per usual uh, by reading Psalm of the Day, uh, reading a prayer uh, from the Valley of Vision. This is March's book of the month. It's on the bookshelf, which is out yonder. Um, if you get to the ramp that goes up to the children's wing, go like three more steps and you'll see it. Um, it's just a helpful book, uh, collection of Puritan prayers and devotions. And I think that it helps, um, to be able to read how other people have prayed. Uh, and so that's how we will start this morning. So Psalm five. Psalm of the day. Today is March the 5th, so we've got 5, 35, 65, 95, and 115. Is that the math? 90 plus 30? 90. What? <laughs> okay, anyway, so the five Psalms of the day. <laughs> so 125, not 115. Okay. I don't math. Um, but I can read sometimes. So let's read Psalm chapter 5. It's to the choir master for the flutes. Anybody play the flute in here? It's a shame. Uh, a Psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. 
The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man, but I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them. For those who love your name may exalt in you, that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover them with favor as with a shield. And let's pray. Creator and Redeemer God, author of all existence, source of all blessedness, we adore you for making us capable of knowing you, for for giving us reason and conscience, for leading us to desire you. We praise you for the revelation of yourself in the gospel, for your heart as a dwelling place of pity, for your thoughts of peace toward us, for your patience and for your graciousness, for the vastness of your mercy. You have moved in our consciences to know how the guilty can be pardoned, the unholy sanctified, the poor enriched. May we always be among those who not only hear you, but know you, who walk with and rejoice in you, who take you at your word and find life there. Keep us always longing for a present salvation in the Holy Spirit in comforts and rejoicings, for spiritual graces and blessings, for help to value our duties as well as our privileges. And may we cherish simplicity and godly sincerity of character. Help us to be in reality before you as in appearance we are before others, to be religious before we profess religion, to leave the world before we enter the church, to set our affections on things above, to shun forbidden follies and vanities, to be a dispenser as well as a partaker of grace, to be prepared to bear evil as well as to do good. O God, make us worthy of this calling, that the name of Jesus may be glorified in us and we in him. We praise you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Any thoughts before we jump into our topic today? Psalm 5. So we will pick up... um, We started last week, uh, the second week of... um, Temptations. We're looking at temptations of the devil and the world. I, I want to just give a brief overview of that. This probably you can, probably can't see this. Everyone, I don't know. We'll work on that. Um, but we let's see. We were talking about trials, temptations, those sort of things. Um, the two enemies that we face when it comes to battling against sin in our lives. Uh, And we're looking at um, 
Matthew chapter 4 specifically to see the temptation of Jesus. Because let's see, we started... Um, with the realization that temptation is not wrong, that um, if temptation is sinful, then we would have to charge Christ with sin because he was tempted. Uh, And that is not the case. And uh, we were discussing how then we are to go about thinking of the differences between trials and temptations. I thought we were having some good discussion on that. And actually, I read... um, read this book, uh, Kevin DeYoung, which is next month's book of the month. Uh, So look out for that. Uh, But he had a really helpful section on the differences between trials and temptations, which I will just run through quickly here because I think that... uh, was one of the things that we were trying to come to conclusion on. And uh, I don't think I was being overly clear, and so maybe we could just spend a little bit more time there. So he's talking about the sixth petition in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And he said, the, re- the request seems simple enough. Lead us not into temptation. Until we try to define what temptation is. There are at least three different kinds of temptations in the Bible. Sometimes, first, the Bible portrays temptations as trials or testing. These trials are not in themselves sinful, but the suffering they entail can tempt us to doubt God, to compromise with this world, or give up on the faith. James 1.2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. The Greek word translated trials is uh, parasmois. It's the same word used in verb form in James 1.3 that is translated several times as tempted or tempts. And so that's maybe some of the difficulty we were having because I think Carl even was mentioning that last week, that it's the same word, uh, different prefix, temptation, or trial. So temptation can refer broadly to the suffering, tribulation, and trials that we are called to endure. So that's the first way that it can be used in in a more broad sense. Secondly, sometimes the Bible thinks of temptations as enticements to sin. These temptations can arise from without, which would be external to us. Uh, Think of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, which is what we were considering. He had no sin nature, lusting after what was wrong. Yes, Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. He was a true human, and yet that doesn't mean that his experience of temptation was in every way identical to our experience. He was tempted externally by the devil's entreaties and suggestions. Likewise, we can also be tempted from the outside, by the world's lies and promises. So temptations can be broad, referring to trials or testings. Secondly, temptations can be enticements to sin. Or thirdly, temptations, uh, thirdly, there are those that temptations arise from within, those allurements to sin that are internal, originating from the power of indwelling sin. This is what James means when he says, 
Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. James 1.14 These are the temptations Christ did not experience. He had no sinful lusts. He had no misplaced desires in his heart. Jesus was tempted in suffering by trials and by the devil's words, but not from within by fallen desires. We are tempted by all three. Jesus is only tempted by the first two. So what does it mean to pray, lead us not into temptation? It doesn't mean, do not entice me to sin. God never entices to sin, James 1.13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. He himself tempts no one. Um, The Lord tests the righteous, Psalm 115, but he does not tempt us. That is, he does not present us before us sin as an attraction. It would be inconsistent with God's character for him ever to present sin to us in order to entice us. But notice the Lord's Prayer does not say, Father, do not tempt me. This is a wholly unnecessary prayer. Rather, it says, do not lead me into temptation. That means do not allow me to be near the allure of sin. Do not bring me near to the devil. Do not permit me to be in a situation where the enticement to sin will be greater than I can bear. Uh, That's what Jesus is teaching us to pray. Uh, He goes on uh, to discuss this further, and I I mean, I would definitely recommend this book to you. He kind of leaves it with saying, the question was whether uh, in Jesus' temptation, the question was whether Jesus would listen to the devil. Uh, Would Jesus try to prove his identity on the devil's terms? Did Jesus love God more than food? Did Jesus trust God uh, could satisfy his hunger another way? And what Jesus does in his response to the temptations, which is where we were going, was he fought pleasure with pleasure. And so in in the response of Jesus, uh, we were about to get to Matthew 4, uh, verses 5 to 7. Let me pull that up. Um, Because I think this is, well, it's at least where I wanted to go. But the three three things that DeYoung brings out, um, is that helpful? Does it help give maybe even some parameters to our discussion that we had? Um, I need a drink. Any thoughts on that? I don't, oh, it's right here. So that it could be broad, as in just trials or testing. It could also be enticement to sin, or it could be the uh, indwelling temptations that arise from within. All right, so that, we'll just yeah. I don't. Maybe that wasn't helpful. I don't know. But we'll we'll keep going through the. Temptations of Jesus. Let's look at Matthew 4, verses 5 to 7. Could I get a volunteer to read that for us? Matthew 4, 5 to 7. Thanks, Noah. Appreciate it. You're the man. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, you will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up. Let you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Thank you. 
But that, that was the last of the three temptations, was it not? This is the second. The second one? Yeah. <clears throat> so, so somebody summarize for me what's going on in those few verses. I just don't know how anyone would be tempted to jump off. At my <laughs> point, you know, the yeah. hope that the... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, and that, that's, that's, that's key, because what Satan is tempting him with uh, where he goes on to say, uh, it is written, so Satan is saying to Jesus, it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Satan's quoting scripture to Jesus. And Jesus, in response, is quoting scripture to him. Right. All three of the responses for all three of the tests that yeah. the devil put him up to yeah. were responded by quoting scripture by Jesus. Yeah. Which we, we said last week, um, we can learn from that, from that pattern, that in our temptation, whatever it is that we may be presented with, if it's from within, if it's from without, um, we should be able to draw to mind Scripture uh, so that we remember the promises of God and can stand firm against whatever it is we might be facing. I got a footnote here that says that Satan's intention and that temptation was to make Christ sin. So as to thwart God's plan for man's redemption by disqualifying the Savior, God's purpose to lead is to lead Jesus to be tested was to prove his son to be sinless and thus a worthy Savior. Mm. It is clear that he was actually tempted. It is also clear that he was sinless. Mm -hmm. So, so Satan is quoting to Jesus Psalm ninety-one. Uh, and he's trying to uh, get Jesus to put God to the test. Uh, and if Jesus were to jump off the pinnacle of the temple, he would be challenging God's faithfulness. Instead of trusting God's faithfulness, he would be, um, instead of resting in those promises, I guess in a sense saying to the Father, prove it, uh, instead of, Knowing I that it's true. It. Yeah, yeah. And it's a subtle temptation, and Jesus understood the real intention of Psalm 91, which is that God will send his angels uh, to be the refuge uh, for, for him, uh, and that he's going to be protecting the son whom he loves according to his faithfulness. Uh, and so that, that in, in and of itself, I think, is instructive for us uh, because the Bible can be easily distorted. Uh, you could you could hear many people, I mean, I don't know, I guess I have normal I, I don't I don't know exactly what to say. I have um, usual ideas that I 
go against. And, and in, in this, the first one that came to mind was Joel Osteen, which there are others and there would even be more subtle, subtle ways um, where someone could use scripture, a promise, a, a genuine real promise that is given in scripture. And I think a lot of, a lot of like the Joel Osteen types will take, um, you know, a promise given to the nation of Israel uh, about whether, I don't know, land seed blessing and apply it to an individual and say, if you, you know, support me in my ministry, whatever it is, uh, then God will do this for you in your life. And it's a twisting of scripture. Um, but that, that sort of thing happens and it's easy to kind of bring those examples up, but also I think we need to look inward with that too, where we have the same capabilities. I would say that we, we would be able to, to, to read scripture and either misunderstand or uh, misapply or take something that is not directly um, applicable to us and claim it as our own as like a, I don't know, like a name it and claim it sort of thing, which we need to be aware of in our own lives uh, that we understand scripture in terms of uh, what it would have meant to the original audience. Uh, because if it means something to us that it didn't mean to the original audience, then it's, uh, I mean, I would say that we're wrong in that understanding. Um, we need to understand the original intent as second Timothy two says to rightly divide the word of truth. Uh, and we need to be able to, to acknowledge that it could take place within our own hearts too. Uh, even, you know, indwelt by the Holy spirit and trying to, to read scripture faithfully. Um, but yeah, just something to be aware of in our own, own lives that twisting scripture is, um, something that's possible. Uh, and we need to understand as much as we can to to prevent that from happening. So then at the at the end of the day, what what we're taking from this is that Christ overcame the temptation to put God to the test. And our chief we weapon against temptation is the truth of God's word that promise a, promises us a better future if we listen to him. Uh, we know what is coming in the resurrection and the life eternal and all of those sort of things. Um, and so we should cling to those and rest in those promises. The third temptation comes in uh, verses 8 through 10. We get a uh, volunteer to read that. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So, read 11 2. Uh, the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. Yeah. Amen. So, somebody want to summarize what's going on there? <clears throat> Say kind of that same absolute power corrupts. Corrupts absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. 
So what is what is Satan trying to get Jesus to do? And why is that wrong? <laughs> okay. So imagine it weren't the devil. Why would that be wrong? That's right. And that's how Jesus responds. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So the devil is trying to get Jesus to sell out uh, for the temporary. Yeah, and he wanted him. He, yeah, he wanted him to to bow down, and is promising. He's promising things that he can't deliver on. Correct. And so there's. Yeah, yeah. And again, he's trying to get Jesus to doubt the Father's goodness. He's tempting Jesus to try to satisfy his heart with something other than God. Uh, and there are obviously Trinitarian realities that we could discuss there, but um, we'll... You know, and on a much smaller scale, we are faced with that continually with the bombardment by, by uh, newspapers and TV and movies uh, on a daily, continuing basis, okay? Or by the uh, joy of uh, idols being, whether it be a vehicle or a motorcycle or whatever it is that we put uh, at the pinnacle of our point of worship. And the devil is very crafty in putting these shiny things in that place. Yeah. And we just have to remain focused on the Lord and remember that our strength comes from the Lord and not from these things that we are that are put in front of us. That's right. So then the takeaway that we have from this is that Christ overcame the temptation to sell out for temporary glory instead of waiting for the promised glory. Uh, and and yeah, so Jesus, I mean, is one with the Father. He he's the exalted son, he's the Messiah, and um, Satan is foolishly tempting him to try to step out of those things. Uh, but if we are in Christ, then the realities that that Christ has, you know, oneness with the Father, um, exalted status, uh, become ours in him. And we are foolishly so quick to fall to the temptation to, uh, you know, take our eyes off of those things and put them onto lesser things. And so hopefully we can notice that, identify those things, and turn from them. Um, I want to move now to the topic of sanctification. Unless you have questions, thoughts, comments, concerns, complaints about trials, temptations, overcoming, those sort of things. Okay. Which means skipping a little bit, which is fine. If you, if you wanted to know the, the spiritual habits for the end of that lesson, you can have them there for a second. A uh, couple passages to read. Ways in which you're tempted. Um, sanctification is something that I find very interesting. Um, I've got 23 minutes. 
to discuss sanctification. Uh, and <clears throat> it's, I don't know, I, like, I think the, the better we understand what sanctification is, the better we can experience it, uh, in my opinion. We'll see if I can convince you of that this morning. So, um, purpose of what we're doing today, sanctification is becoming more and more like Christ and being transformed into his image. So purpose of, of what we will discuss from this point forward um, is when you are justified, you are declared righteous by God. That was week one. Uh, now that you are justified, there's a process of growth and transformation in which you are enabled more and more to grasp the reality that you are dead to your old sinful life and that you actually become more and more like Christ. So in this session, we will learn that uh, sanctification is how we are transformed into the likeness of Christ. And we will do that by looking at the three aspects of sanctification, definitive, progressive, and ultimate sanctification. So in this discussion of sanctification, we have to start with, um, with definitive sanctification. And so simply, when we use the word sanctify, sanctification, we're talking about being set apart. S similar root word understanding idea of the word holiness, that we are um, set apart by God for a purpose. Uh, and so that, I mean, in a nutshell, is definitive sanctification. When you're saved, you are sanctified. You are set apart. Uh, and it's, it's this positional status that you now have uh, where you can even see at the top of the, the slide, it says our status as saints, that you are made holy. And this is something that is different than justification. Definitive sanctification is similar to justification. Justification is more of a legal declaration. It's that we are declared righteous, uh, but definitive sanctification has to do with, um, with the relational status, I guess I would say, instead of legal status that comes from the declaration of righteousness that is over us. Uh, and so definitive sanctification is the state of being, per being permanently set apart for God. So if you are a believer, you are a saint. Saint is just another way of saying holy one. Uh, and so this is, this, is our, this is our position. This is who we are because of uh, having been justified. There is, though, a second kind of sanctification, which we would label progressive sanctification. Now, when we are discussing sanctification, when somebody says the doctrine of sanctification or are you being sanctified? I don't know if anyone has ever asked you if you're being sanctified. Maybe they should, you know? Um, chances are this is what they mean. This, this idea of progressive sanctification of dying to sin. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 35, 
asks, what is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. One of, I said sanctification is one of my favorite doctrines. I think, think it's because of just like the, the, the storyline of Scripture. So we're studying Genesis. We have seen um, the created order. God creates, and it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. It's good, it's very good. Um, there may have been one too many goods there. And we are created in the image of God. We're created to reflect the nature and character of God to the world. But then we get to chapter 3. We haven't gotten there yet next week. And sin happens, which distorts the image of God. So uh, it does not remove the image of God from humanity. But we, because of sin, are no longer able to image God uh, as perfectly as we should be able to uh, prior to the fall because sin has messed that up. But if we continue to, I mean, even even look at uh, the Old Covenant, the laws, the sacrifices, uh, all of those things, I think, are trying to help us image God, help the nation of Israel image God uh, more accurately. But when we come to the new covenant, when we come to um, this idea of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the purpose of, at least one of the purposes of the Spirit living inside of us is to help us more accurately reflect the image of God. And and so... um, when we are united to Christ by faith and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we are united to the one who is the exact imprint of the nature of God. And by the Spirit, we die to sin, we become more like Him, and are transformed into His image. And so this progressive aspect of sanctification describes the ongoing process of sanctification where that is happening within us daily. So think of sanctification even in terms of the image of God being renewed in us. Uh, J.I. Packer describes this as God working in us to produce character, produce character change, freeing us from sinful habits and forming in us Christ-like affections, dispositions, and virtues. And so we grow in holiness, which means we are more conformed to the likeness of Christ. Uh, Again, I'm going to quote Kevin DeYoung here because Kevin DeYoung is my favorite Presbyterian, if I have to be honest. Um, And I just think he's a very clear thinker. He wrote a book called The Hole in Our Holiness, and he said this, The avoidance of little evils and little foibles the setting aside of little bits of worldliness and little acts of compromise, the putting to death of little inconsistencies and little 
indiscretions, the attention to little duties and little dealings, the hard work of little self-denials and little self-restraints, the cultivation of little benevolences and little forbearances. Are you trustworthy? Are you kind? Are you patient? Are you joyful? Do you love? These qualities worked out in all the little things of life determine whether you are a blight or blessing to everyone around you, whether you are an ugly spiritual eyesore or growing up into a good-looking Christian. And so the, the, the process of sanctification that we're talking about here, he's describing in terms of little things, little steps forward, as I think he's arguing that holiness is the sum of a, of a million little things. Uh, and so as, as we grow in holiness, it may not be like we're taking leaps and bound each and every day, but it should be something that we are advancing in and being more conformed uh, to the image of Christ. Uh, so then the main definition of sanctification is the lifelong process of growing more and more like Christ. I will also say in this, um, this is where... Um, this is where, I mean, I specifically, but I think anyone in, in, a, in the Protestant tradition uh, would disagree with the Roman Catholic Church, uh, where they would see uh, justification as a lot of what I've just described. But they would see just, uh, justification as something that you can fall in and out of something that you can increase or decrease in. And that's the whole penitential system where you fall out of the state of grace. And in order to get back into the state of grace, you have to, to perform these, these duties, these rituals, whatever it may be, penance. Um, and yeah. And so that you can be brought back into the state of justification. I think justification is a one and done thing. But sanctification is definitely a process, and it's something where um, it's, it's lifelong. It's lifelong moral renovation, uh, transformation brought about by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Uh, which Would you also say that uh, sanctification is uh, another way of describing our salvation? It's a work of progress and ongoing uh, procedure that we never uh, 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 truly cover it completely until the time of the coming of Christ, or till we go to meet Him in person. So, I I don't think so. I think okay. yeah. So you you describe salvation as a process. Right. I would I would say salvation is a yes or no, and it's something so like well, similar. I'm referring to that verse. Scripture says to work out your salvation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if, if, it's a, if you're working out your mm -hmm. salvation, it would be more uh, equivalent to sanctification, which is a process of working it out to become more Christ-like. Well, that's what we're doing when we're uh, working out our salvation as right. well. You know, yeah. Uh, it's not, as far as I'm concerned, it's not a yes or no thing. Justification, yes or no. Yeah. Okay, you're correct. Yeah. But sanctification and salvation, uh, you know, the goal of salvation is to become more Christ-like, is it not? Yeah, I, so I would use salvation as a synonym for justification. Okay. And I would say sanctification. So then what would you uh, uh, 
uh, refer to that verse of scripture. Uh, the workout, your salvation is fear and trembling. Yeah, come to the decision point. Yeah, it's, salvation is when you is when you, you reach the decision point of realizing who Christ was, what his sacrifice meant, who we are in relation to Christ, and what his sacrifice means for us, and accepting that sacrifice and and um, willingly submitting. Uh, to it and to Christ through that. And the process of going through that realization and working through understanding those concepts and bringing yourself um, or being brought by God to the point where you can accept that and submit to that is what I understand that verse is. As, as that being the defining attribute of sanctification? Uh, justification. Sanctification oh. is what, so self, salvation is that process that I just described. Okay. Once gotcha. you reach that decision point where you've said, yes, Lord, I, I, I'm a sinner. I realize who you are. You're the son of God. All the, you've said this, the prayer, basically. Well, yeah. Well, right. You came to that. Nine and ten. Yeah. You got gotcha. you, you, you reached that decision point. Right. You, then you've been saved. You, you, okay, you, exactly. you've had your moment of salvation. You are now justified. Okay. Now you embark on the process of sanctification, where you you work over the course of your life to become more like Christ. Okay. Basically. All right. Yeah, and and so then I would I would say sanctification is the process of living in light of your justification. So you to to. Uh, <clears throat> Your or to, your no, it? To, to prove, yeah, yeah to in submission, right? Well, if you if you reach the point where where you recognize that Christ, you are God, and you came and you lived a perfect life and you sacrificed yourself right. for me, and right. I I am not going to reject that. I'm going to submit to that. Right. Then from every moment then on. I want to live in reflection of, of, of that fact. Mm. And I'm not going to be, that's, that's what, that's what the Christian life is, is recognizing that like, I'm not going to be able to do that every moment. That's, that's what sin is when I, when I fail in that, um, from a Christian, from, from the perspective of someone who has been saved, um, I'm going to fail in that. I'm not going to, I'm not going to be perfect even though I'm saved. But I'm going to continually be trying to become better at living in submission to that fact, in in structuring my life to be a pointer for others yeah. to, towards that. Right. And that process of trying to restructure my life, um, you know, it's it's a I'm phrasing it in a way where I'm I'm talking about how I'm trying to do that, but like that's a that's a no, that's a, a very good way a, to describe it that's because a, that's where that's where we should all be. Yeah, well, and it's and also it's something that's done in conjunction with God working in your right. life. But from our per, from our perspective, it's something that you're trying to do right. in conjunction with God. And well, you don't do it on your own anyway. Yeah, yeah. As a result of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, yeah. that uh, puts that uh, conviction in your heart to now become like Christ. Yes. Yeah. Or to yes. accept the attributes of Christ and accept God's will in your life. Exactly, and that process of moving. Towards that is 
Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that and that's another difference between justification and sanctification. Correct. Where um Well justification is a one and deal, yes or no. Yeah. And that's that's a that's a work of that's a work of the spirit in us. Sanctification, though, is uh, I can only think of the the big words. So, sanctification is monergistic. There's one actor. The actor is God. Sanctification is synergistic. There's two actors, which the Holy Spirit and us working together. That's synergy. Uh, I'm not going to go into metallurgy or anything like that, but but working together to to work this out in our lives as we become holy because of His work, but also because of the desires that He gives us to pursue. We talked about uh, the um, the means of grace, Scripture, church, uh, service, uh, prayer. Did I say prayer already? Etc. 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 Yeah. And so, so we are we are doing this together with the Holy Spirit to be conformed to the image of Christ, until we reach ultimate sanctification, which you may also have heard it it termed glorification. And this is the third sense that we can speak of sanctification. Um, our sanctification will not be complete and perfect until we see Christ, either at death or his return. Uh, there would be others who would disagree with that, but but I don't think that in this life uh, it is possible to live without sin, uh, but we are on the process of in the process of being conformed more to the image of Christ. Um, Paul says in Philippians 3, not that I've already attained or I'm already perfect, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus also laid hold of uh, for me. This final sense of sanctification will be realized when we are glorified. And this, this is our eternal experience. So in heaven, we will experience ultimate sanctification or glorification. Then we will be like Jesus and no longer sin. That this, this whole idea of, I just finished Revelation of seeing the resurrected Christ in his glorified body uh, and being in his presence. We will be in the presence with of God. And, I mean, just even based on a lot of different passages, some we've already noted that God doesn't, he is not in the presence of sin. So something has to change within us and that has to be removed, uh, which is glorification where we are transformed uh, in an instant, whether that instant is our death or Christ's return. Um, this is the ultimate goal of, of the Christian life where uh, we are transformed into his likeness and will once again bear the image that Adam and Eve, prior to sin, bore uh, in a sinless state. So there's that to look forward to, which will be amazing. Uh, and, and sin will not, not be something that is a reality for us. What time is it?
42, where are we here? Um, that's not our experience right now, right? Sin is a reality in our lives, and there's much we could say about this, but I, again, want to quote Kevin DeYoung. Uh, he says, when we sin, our union with Christ is not in jeopardy, but our communion is. And so, so when we are taking our eyes off of, of Jesus as our primary reality, however we want to explain that, um, it's not as if we're going to fall out of, st- of our state of justification, but we are going to rupture the relationship. Our communion will, will be jeopardized and we will no longer um, be living according to, to what he requires of us. Um, so, so to, let me see here, I'm a little behind here. First John 2, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, I just love that. I'm writing these things so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but the sins of the whole world. So when we sin as Christians, we do not lose our justification status of being declared righteous in God's sight. But sin does break our fellowship with God, and our Father will discipline and correct us in order to restore that fellowship. So the process of that in our lives is that we confess, we repent, and we forsake sin and move forward. When we sin, we are to confess. We're to, to, to acknowledge that we have, however we want to define it, we've failed, we've missed the mark, we have transgressed the commands of God. And in order to have the fellowship restored with the Father, that's what we need to do. Uh, we need to acknowledge that we have not lived according to his requirements. Uh, and it's, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but that's a daily thing. Um, and so we, uh, we will continually be on this journey of being conformed to the image of Christ, not doing that perfectly, confessing, repenting, and the, the fellowship being restored as we uh, seek to uh, look more and more like him and hoping for the glorification that is to come. So, cultivating some spiritual habits. Read Psalm 119. Yes! Why are you excited? Oh, okay. And uh, then write down the definition of justification, sanctification. Think about the differences. Memorize Proverbs 28. If you don't like reading, how do you feel about memorizing? Just love it. Probably about the same as he does about reading. Yeah. (laughs) Well, then, as we we close in prayer, maybe we could pray for Noah that he would have a desire to read the Word of God. Okay. Okay, good, good. I'm just giving you a hard time because it's fun. I know. <laughs> uh, well, let's pray. Father, we are so thankful uh, that we can rest assured uh, in the justifying work of the Lord Jesus. We pray that you would work in all of us the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit and help us to be willing participants in that uh, and to go about the task of being conformed to the image of Christ with great joy. Uh, we pray that you do that in all of us. And uh, we pray that you would give us all, not just Noah, a desire to read your word uh, and that we would um, just come, come before you in your word 
eager uh, to hear what it is that you require of us and then give us the ability by your spirit uh, to do it. And we pray that you would do this for your glory uh, and for our good. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. I think we, uh, yeah, 46.